You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. You know, we're going to continue our study on Colossians, and we made the point that if Paul had a thesis statement, if I could sort of derive a thesis statement for the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians, it would be this. That he is saying in the book of Colossians from start to finish, ultimately in a hundred different ways, that Christ without anything added to him at all is everything. And that anything without Christ, no matter how great it is, anything without Christ is absolutely nothing. And then he calls the Colossian people to live this way. And and we, we said this, and I borrowed this from another writer, that in Colossians, Paul makes colossal statements about Christ. And I want you to remember that because if he's saying that Christ alone is everything, then he's going to make these grand, grand statements about Christ, these colossal statements about life in Christ and what it means and who Jesus really is in hopes to change the way the Colossian Christians see the world and change the way they live their lives. So we're going to continue with our study of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark. You detecting a pattern? I really mean that. Turn to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, because there's something we need, to, uh, we need to wrestle with just for a minute together. Mark chapter 1, the words of Jesus, verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the what? Good news. What's another word for that? Gospel. Preaching the gospel. The gospel of what? The gospel of God. And listen to his gospel. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is something to be obeyed. Repent and believe in the gospel. When he says that the kingdom of God has come near, he's not saying that it's almost here. When Jesus says that it's come near, he's saying just what he's saying. It is here. It is right here. It is right next to you. It is close to you. It is within your grasp. What Jesus is essentially saying is that the kingdom of God, the rule of God in his righteousness and love, that he's inaugurating it. He's, he's setting it apart. It's, it's the inauguration day for God's very real and present kingdom where God's rule, where God's righteousness, where God's love is being made available to anyone and everyone through Jesus. And this is huge for people. Because Jesus is saying that anybody now, in a religious world where anybody wasn't accepted, where there was tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes, there was like denominationalism in Judaism, and there was all of this background and all of this marginalization of, of outcasts in society, Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, the kingdom of God, the rule and righteousness and love of God is now made available to anyone through me. Repent and believe in this gospel. Because this is good news for the, for the outcast. This is good news for the prostitute. This is good news for the Pharisee if he learns what it means. This is good news for the leper. This is good news for the adulterous woman. This is good news for the woman at the well. This becomes good news for the tax collectors. This is good news. And see, this kingdom that Jesus talks about makes sense to them. We live in a democracy. They lived in a monarchy. Their entire Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, all of their Hebrew scriptures prophesied of this Messiah that would sit at the throne of this kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And they were expecting this kingdom to come. They just thought it would be an earthly kingdom with an earthly king. 
And so when Jesus comes and he starts to say that the kingdom of God has been made near, and he, the Jewish ear understands what that means in some ways. They understand that, okay, so a king from David's throne is going to now come and going to topple and trump the Roman kingdom, and now the kingdom of God is going to finally be established, and we're no longer going to be under the Roman rule and the Roman oppressive hand. And not only that, that if this guy is the Messiah, then he's the king that's going to sit on the throne, and it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful thing. It is good news. But it wasn't the kind of kingdom that they expected. And so you hear Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, when there's a lot of question as to what he's teaching and what he's really doing in this whole kingdom of God or Jesus' gospel. And this is what he says. He says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And Jesus is essentially saying, if you're doubting that this gospel is really gospel, that this good news is really good news, then here's how you test it. If I'm driving out demons, the kingdom of God is right in your face. It is present. It is tangible, and it is real. And we all know that Jesus was driving out demons. But they were still confused. They still doubted. But there's something else Jesus means when he says this, I think. And there's something that his gospel means that we don't talk about a lot. And that Paul is going to unpack in great detail. That the gospel has power. Look. He's saying this kingdom of God, if you want to know this kingdom of God is legit, that it is real, that it comes with power, then you know that when I am casting out demons by the finger of God, this kingdom of God is being proven to you that it has the power over all kingdoms. There is no kingdom greater than the kingdom of God. There's no power greater than the kingdom of God. The Roman kingdom is not more powerful than the kingdom of God. The American kingdom is not more powerful than the kingdom of God. The devil's kingdom is not more powerful than the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees' little kingdom that they're trying to develop and religious people or unreligious people are the kingdoms of men, your kingdom, where you sit on your throne and determine how your life is lived, how my life is lived. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God will trump all of those kingdoms. And that really, if you, if you just listen, Jesus is saying, if you just repent and believe, then you will see that it is, it is, the, it is good news. It is gospel. And see, the kingdom was being inaugurated by Jesus, but the legitimacy and the power of this kingdom was proven. In his thorned, crowned death, redemptive death, and in his restorative, new creation, birthing, resurrection. See, if Jesus would have just died, then all of this would have been nonsense. And he would have just been a prophet, we all know. But when he was crowned with a crown of thorns and died on a cross and forgiveness of sins was proclaimed and the resurrection demonstrated his power over death and that the kingdom of God has power over all other kingdoms. The kingdom of God had indeed come to us. This was Jesus' gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Paul begins to understand this gospel and listen to how he proclaims it. Verse 1, now brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel, the good news. I proclaimed to you and received it, 
And listen to this, and have taken your stand on it. Paul, right there in the outset in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, is saying that not only did you obey this gospel, not only did you receive it, but you also live in it. You stand in it. It actually sustains your already saved life now. He says, I want to I clarify for you this gospel. Because you're saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you. What's that message again? The gospel, unless you believe to no purpose. For I passed on to you, most important, what I also received. Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins... What are those words? According to the scriptures. He really is the promised king. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That Jesus again is the promised king. So when Paul outlines his gospel church, he's not just saying, uh, he's not just offering a plan of salvation. Which is how we traditionally understand it sometimes. He's offering Jesus himself, but not just Jesus himself as God made flesh. He's offering Jesus himself as the promised king according to the scriptures that would set up a kingdom that would forever give victory to people who would enter into that kingdom through the promised Messiah. That as a result would offer forgiveness of sins and that as a result would offer a completely new and different life that never ends. John would call that eternal life. Jesus is the promised king of Israel, and that makes him the king of kings. That's the gospel. And that changes everything. So in Colossians 1.3, if you have your Bibles there, now turn to Colossians. We find the beginning. We talked through verse, the first two verses last week. Now we're, now we're going to move into what is known as Paul's prayer and thanksgiving. In Colossians 1.3, this is one very long introductory thanksgiving and prayer. This prayer actually ends up lasting for about 23 verses. If you think I'm long-winded, meet Paul. All right, Paul, he leaves this verse and this thankfulness for 23 verses. And as with most of all Paul's letters, in his prayer and thanksgiving, which is why it's just more than something we need to read and pray, in his prayer and thanksgiving, Paul is going to unpack the themes that he's going to work through the entire letter. So in his prayer and in his thanksgiving, Paul's going to talk about what he wants to talk about. He's thanking God for what he wants to talk about even more. Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8. Let's read it together. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. It, the gospel, is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. You learn this from Epaphras, our much-loved fellow slave. He's a faithful minister of the Messiah on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Just a little um, nerdy point. In the Greek language, verses 3 through 8 is actually one sentence. And that does, that does make a difference because Paul is in one primary thought. Though it sounds like he's bumping around a lot of different points, and though preachers often collect a topical sermon out of this text, I think the appropriate way to deal with this particular text is to find the one central theme, because it is one long, continuous thought. 
and we got to deal with the Bible appropriately. But I do want to just acknowledge some things. If you look at verse 3, Paul acknowledges their kinship in Christ again. He calls God the Father. So from the outset, he acknowledges again, he reiterates verse 2 that we are faithful brothers, and he says that we are now your Father. This is your Father. God is your Father. And he establishes again Jesus as Lord or as King, and he does this right on the outside of his letter. He doesn't want there to be any confusion. And then you look at verse 4 and 5, and you see a very, very typical Pauline sort of theme. He mentions faith, hope, and love. Does that sound familiar? So right there in the introductory place, that the very thing that he said in 1 Corinthians 13 is the greatest things of all. He mentions in same fashion, implicitly, that faith, hope, and love is still the greatest thing of all. And so he mentions faith, hope, and love. But look at where it comes from. This faith and this love and this hope springs from the gospel. Look at verse 6. It's this gospel that is at work among them and that is bearing fruit all over the world. And so what I want to propose to us this morning as we kind of enter into this conversation is that the gospel is actually the central theme. Not only is it one of the central themes of Colossians, Christ is ultimately, I think, the central theme of Colossians. But in this section of text, the gospel is actually the central theme of this entire section of text. This was one sentence because everything he's saying flows into and out of the gospel. And, and when you think about the context, remember the Colossian struggle here. Remember their struggle. They live in a world that is offering a lot of false gospels. It's offering a lot of false good news. For instance, you have the good news of higher knowledge. Remember that was one of the religious things that was offered to them. This idea that if, if you just come to this higher knowledge of what life really is, then you will then achieve the superior ultimate life. And you will understand all mysteries of this world. You'll understand the reason behind all suffering. You will understand why bad things happen to good people. You'll know where the humanity is going and what humanity is about. You'll know why the world is in the shape that it is in. This is good news for people. It's good news to know that there's an alternative life that becomes a superior life that can explain all the mysteries of life. And it's good news. And people in the Colossian church had started to believe this good news. But it's false good news. <clears throat> There's the good news that, gods, that the gods will not always be angry. Remember, they lived in a culture that still embraced Greek gods. And these Greek gods were all powerful gods. But they were hostile towards human beings. But the good news is that these gods that do exist and are in power can be appeased through sacrifices and prayers. And so what you need to do, Colossian, is you need to make sure that you're offering sacrifices and prayers to the Greek gods, and especially Zeus. Because Zeus is the most powerful god of all. He's the god of weather. And Zeus's primary weapon is the thunderbolt. And any time you hear lightning or hear thunder, then you know the very scary truth that Zeus is present. And Zeus has one primary concern in all of his existence. He's very concerned with hospitality. He's very concerned with how humans treat one another. And who hasn't treated their neighbor poorly at some point in time in this world? You do not want Zeus to come out you 
to be outraged at you because you were inhospitable towards your neighbor. Or you'll see a thunderbolt. But the good news, the good news is, just offer a sacrifice and prayer to him, and he'll be appeased. That's good news if you believe in Zeus. That's good news if you believe in the Greek gods. That's good news, but it's false good news. But then there's the good news that the God of the Jews will accept you for sure. See, remember in the Colossian church, they also had the Judaizing Christians. And the false teachers who came through the church who said, you've got to keep the law of Moses in order to truly be accepted before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in addition to your belief in Jesus Christ or your faith in Jesus Christ. Because who can deny the longevity and the legitimacy of the Jewish faith? So if you really want to make sure that you're in good with the God of the Old Testament, you better make sure you have more than just faith in Jesus. You better get circumcised and keep the rituals and keep the laws and keep all the feasts and make sure you keep all the festivals. And for some people, that would be seen as good news because that's shoring it up right there. But it's false good news. And so Paul wants to make sure that each of these philosophies and each of these religions that were very convincing would be contrasted clearly by the gospel. And one thing too, before we think that the Colossian people were just stupid, they didn't have the Bible church. It's not like they could do like us and open up a letter or a a series of letters. Sure, letters circulated to them that became scripture, but it's not like they had a Bible bound where they could work this out. That's why they needed people like Epaphras and Paul to write letters. They leaned and relied much more heavily on the Holy Spirit, perhaps, than maybe we do sometimes. And so, they needed to be reminded. So Paul reminds them that this gospel, which contains grace grace and truth, that this gospel could become the theological framework through which they understand what God is trying to do in their life. And so Paul begins to work it out. Let's read verse 3 through 6 again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You've already heard about this hope and the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the first day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. The gospel at work among them, Paul says, roots them in truth and that truth produces real hope. It is truth because it proclaims the truest realities that God's redeeming work in Jesus Christ is enough And that God's redeeming work in Jesus Christ established a kingdom that is powerful above all other kingdoms. And that that kingdom is more than enough. It is a truth because it becomes an alternative way of seeing their world. That if they trust this gospel and they trust it as truth, then they will be able to understand all of the lies. They will know that the Greek gods are a lie because there's only one God and that's the God of Jesus Christ. They will know that the Roman oppression is still, even though it's very real, it is ultimately a lie. Caesar is not God because the king of the kingdom is God and that king is Jesus Christ. They'll understand that it is truth because they'll understand that that Jesus did everything that needed to be done in order to make them acceptable before God and they don't have to keep the law anymore. And that's truth. And so anything else is just a lie. And they'll also understand that this higher knowledge that, that is attainable through some sort of effort and works, that Jesus Christ himself is all knowledge and that he's all wisdom. 
And so this idea of trying to get it from some other place is just simply a lie. And he wants them to understand this is truth. And he also wants them to understand that it is their hope, which is why he says, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you have heard about this hope and the message of truth, the gospel. It's hope because it reminds them that this Jesus who established this kingdom, that God through Jesus has made them children of the king. And that if you're children of the king, that gives you the greatest hope of all. Because when you enter into this kingdom, it is an eternal kingdom. And it's an eternal kingdom that will eventually establish a new heavens and new earth where no lies are told, where no pain is found, where no death longer reigns, where there will be no other kingdoms. And it becomes their hope, this gospel. And they cling to this gospel and it really becomes good news. Because it separates the truth from the lies. And so see what happens when we make the gospel merely a plan of salvation and we lose the breadth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. We lose the reality of what the gospel is trying to tell us. Then what we end up having is sort of a shallow hope at times. And we become prone to believing all the other lies in the world that there's something better out there. In church, Colossian Christians were told that there was something better than Jesus. And it was very convincing. So Paul wanted to remind them that there's only one true gospel and there's nothing better than that good news. And he says it's grounded in faith. Verse 3. And that is the one thing that he starts off as being most thankful for. It is grounded in faith. And he knows that if they live in this faith, that they will develop mature lives. Mature lives in faith, mature lives in this world, they will be mature enough to understand the difference between the truth and the lies. And then he also says this true faith is evidenced by love. Look at the text. He says, and I thank God for your love for all the saints. See, because when you understand the gospel, when you understand that it's life or death truth, when you understand that it is truly good news, it has this way of, of, of working in you that causes you to love all the saints and even all people. Notice he didn't say, I love how you love each other. You notice that. He says, all the saints. I thank God that you love all the saints all across the world, not just the ones in your own backyard, not just the ones you agree with 100%, but the ones all over the world. I love how you love all the saints. Because genuine faith centered in the gospel produces not just loving words, but loving works as well. For all over the world, tangible acts of love centered in the gospel becomes good news to the world. Because it shows the world that there's better news out there for them. It shows the outcast that there's love for them. It shows the divorcee that there's hope for them. It shows the drug addict that there's Freedom for them. It shows the alcoholic that there's a new way of life for them. It shows the sick and suffering human being that there's a life that never ends for them. It's good news. And it's rooted in a king of a kingdom. A kingdom that will never end. 
It's good news. Hey, did you hear of this week that the Hula painted frog has been found? I mean, have you wondered? I mean, Tom, you, you've been, I'm sure you've been wondering if the Hula painted frog would ever be found. Scientists, uh, they, they became very disheartened and, and in 1996 said that this, this beautiful painted frog, as if there is such a thing as a beautiful painted frog, um, was, was, was extinct because they had not seen one in 50 years in its, its northern Israel habitat. But the good news is this frog was found and it's no longer extinct and it can have a life again. That's good news. Did you hear that coffee is good for you? Oh, that's what I'm talking about, Doran. Hallelujah. This year alone, there's been an increase of research proving that people who drink coffee are less likely to have type 2 diabetes. Guess what? I won't have type 2 diabetes. Parkinson's disease, dementia, and have fewer cases of certain cancers, heart rhythm problems, and strokes. Church, that is good news. Coffee for everybody. Guess what I heard this week? Chick-fil-A is going to start serving grilled chicken nuggets soon. Oh, that is good news. And that is good news for Ian. That is great news for Ian because if Ian keeps eating fried chicken nuggets, he's not going to live past 13. His blood's just going to get slow. And, and, and so, so it is good news that Chick-fil-A is coming up for grilled chicken nuggets. Hey, did you hear? And, and some of you might not have, fellas. You need to know this. This is good news. Oprah has her new television channel. <laughs> Oprah did not leave the cultural scene, and that is just good news. She could promote her way of life and her new age spirituality and this great hope and give away all these incredible gifts all over again through her entire life of a new television channel that we can all watch. And that is good news. Did you hear that the birth rates for teenage girls dropped 9% from 2009? That was good news. That is good news that the birth rate for teenage girls is going down. Hey, did you hear, Jason Blanchard? If you didn't hear, then you may need to get a new job. But did you hear that the Dow Jones Industrial Average is posting higher gains on average than this year, than last, over last? Not by much, Jason, but but by a little. I know, right? (laughs) Spoken like a true financial advisor. But that is good news. That is good news. And you might have heard the good news that unemployment claims dropped to a seven-month low. And that's good news. Because that means layoffs are fewer and hirings might actually pick up. That is good news. It's good news. Some might even say it's gospel. And see, none of these good news that we just proclaimed are bad things. None of this good news that we just proclaimed are what the Bible would call sinful things. It's all good news. It's news that offers some semblance of hope, some semblance of joy, some semblance of peace. But here's the reality. The tragic reality is there are people who stake all their hope in this good news. Even some of you and me. And though it may be good news, it is not the true good news that offers real and sustaining hope and joy. 
peace. It may be good news, but it's not gospel. See, Paul writes to Colossians and just simply wants to address things like this. And he wants them to grow mature in their understanding of the gospel. He wants them to understand the difference between the good news of culture, the news that's out there inviting us to put all of our trust and hope in it, and the good news of the gospel, to where Jesus, who is king, makes available a kingdom that offers forgiveness of sins and a life that never ends, eternal life, a life of joy and peace, which is wholeness and grace and truth, a life that is beautiful and that is rich and that is deep. And he invites all people and anyone to it. See, the good news in this world oftentimes creates haves and haves nots. The good news in this world oftentimes creates classes and races and, and, and ethnicities and separations and distinctions. But the good news of the gospel brings it all together. The good news of the gospel proclaims that in Christ there are no Jew, no Greek, no male or female, no, no barbarian, no Scythian, no Jew, no Gentile. That all people can come to this ground that is level at the foot of the cross. Because the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. And that at the foot of the cross, they can see a crowned king. Crowned with thorns that offers them forgiveness. And then they can walk up and over and down this hill of Golgotha and into a garden and find a tomb and peek inside the tomb and see that it is empty, but it is where the king once lay. And they can discover that this Jesus is death-proof. And that makes him fail-proof. And he is their king. And I got to tell you, it's good to know that we got a king that is fail-proof. That's gospel. And he just wants the Colossians to understand this. And so in verse 9, and we'll unpack this next week, he says, for this reason... Since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking. We're asking then that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. You bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You see these big sweeping words like all and every? Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Verse 13, for he has rescued us. He's rescued us from the false gospels. He's rescued us from the other sort of world's version of good news. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin church here's what paul is calling the colossians to in the very first few verses and what we're called to he's calling them to gospel-centered living living in such a way that everything you say and everything you do and everything you see comes back to the good news the truest good news the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of god the good news that jesus is king that he's redeeming reconciling and restoring king paul is just calling them to the gospel centered life see gospel centered living is a life that does not get swept away by the good news of the world it doesn't get swept away believing that the good news of the world can offer sustaining good news. It rejoices in unemployment claims going down. It rejoices in birth rates going down. But it doesn't put all its hope in these things. 
The gospel-centered living is a life that doesn't get tangled up in the kingdoms of the world because they understand the gospel proclaims that these kingdoms will not outlast the kingdom of God. And that's a lesson we need to learn, isn't it, Christians? To not get tangled up in the kingdoms of this world. To not get our hearts and our passions tangled up in those kingdoms. See, gospel-centered living is a life that does not get swept away by the pressure of trying to measure up to the world's expectations or other people's expectations because the gospel reminds us that our truest success comes from all that Christ has done and what He alone offers. We measure up because Christ always measures up. See, gospel-centered living is a life that doesn't get tangled up in chasing after success that comes from getting because the gospel explains success in terms of giving because Jesus gave it all so that we could learn how to then give it all away. The gospel-centered living isn't a life that gets tangled up in chasing after joy and satisfaction through self-indulgence because the gospel explains joy and satisfaction in terms of self-sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed it all. And then he turned around and gave it all to us. The gospel-centered living is a life that does not get caught up in living for what is trendy and keeping up with the Joneses. Because in Christ, we are not offered something trendy. We're offered something timeless. Timeless truth. Timeless love. Timeless joy. A timeless life. We understand that the gospel tells us that we do not get bigger in the eyes of people merely because of what we accomplish. That we only get bigger when we learn how to get smaller and let Christ be as big as he can be. I don't know a lot about parenting, but I know this. When Ian has a toy that breaks, I want him to know that I can fix it. Even if I can't, I'll figure it out. Duct tape works every time. I want to be a hero in his life. I do. But the gospel tells me that there's only one true, unfailing hero in his life. And it's King Jesus. And I've got to figure out a way with all my life to teach him the gospel. He doesn't need to grow up believing that the good news the world has to offer is the best news the world has to offer. That's all Paul wants to communicate. It's gospel-centered living. So I read this. The gospel. Jesus died and resurrected according to the scriptures, which means God's kingdom has come and will fully come at the second coming of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. Therefore, God's victorious rule, righteousness, and love is available to any and all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ as redeeming, reconciling, and restoring King. In Him alone, forgiveness of sins is found, and in Him alone, eternal life lived in the presence of holy God is found. For us who've obeyed this gospel, this life lived in the presence of God begins now. And oh, if we could understand... Therefore, all power and victory that is found in Jesus Christ is offered to us for his glory and our good. And that is good news. If only we can learn how to live in the gospel. And the Holy Spirit will lead us. Make a decision today 
to center your life squarely in the gospel. Preach to yourself every day the gospel. And watch what happens as a result. It will begin to bear fruit among you, through you, and in you. Because it isn't just worldly good news. It is heavenly truth. Let's pray.